This morning I woke up and put on a shirt that had emblazoned on it the logo of one of our conferences that we did in uh, California. And the, the conference was called The Unfinished Task. And it reminded me of what we start tonight as this church. We're kind of the, the unstarted task with everything that we're doing here as a church plant. But we joined the, the, the church at large in trying to see lost come to faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, that's why we do what we do. There's no other reason for us uh, to be still here and not in heaven with the Lord other than uh, we have work to be done, and that work is primarily about seeing lost people saved. We want to be an effective and a fruitful church for Jesus. But to do that, we should know what type of church that Jesus wants us to be. Imagine if we could have God sit down with us and say, look, this is the type of church I want you guys to be. This is what a, a healthy church should look like. Well, in the book of Revelation, in chapters 2 and 3, we kind of get just that. In these chapters, we get Jesus' blueprints for his bride, for the local church. John received from Jesus these seven letters written as uh, assessments of these seven historical churches that were all scattered through this uh, trade route there in Asia Minor. They were key churches. They were churches that would have opened the door for communication to go not just to them, but far and wide and, and to extend these letters. And so uh, Jesus wrote these letters through John and provided his assessment of his bride. And in so doing, he gives us even today a, a glimpse into what the, the local church should look like. The first church up for us is the church in Ephesus. Uh, these seven churches, again, like I said, were historical churches. Ephesus was a historical church in a historical city. And so as we think about Ephesus, I want us to consider the city for a moment. It was one of the key cities in the region of Asia, Asia Minor there. And so if you think uh, our, our, our country today, it was Ephesus was the third largest city in Asia Minor. Uh, that would be the equivalent of today's Chicago. And obviously Chicago has its own problems today, but if you think about Chicago 10, 15, 20 years ago, that was Ephesus during this time. It was a major, major city. In fact, it was the main port city of the region. And if you've been to Ephesus today or to Asia Minor today in that region, and maybe you've, you've toured Ephesus or you've been on a footsteps of Paul journey, maybe you've seen Ephesus and you're thinking to yourself, it was a port city? There's, there's no water anywhere nearby. And that actually will factor into some of the rest of this letter that Jesus is going to write to this church. But at the time, uh, the, the waters were there. They, they came all the way up to Ephesus, and it was a key city. It was positioned at the junction of the four major Roman roads. In fact, it was known as the Market of Ephesus there because all of the goods that would go throughout the region would travel through Ephesus throughout these, these four major Roman roads that intersected right there in the city. It was home to the worship of up to 50 different gods and goddesses. Uh, the key goddess of the, the city was Artemis or Diana. And, uh, and this was just a region of, of, of pagan idolatry everywhere you looked. Uh, it was also known for its athletic competitions. It was known for its dramas. It had a 24,000-seat theater there. It was also known for, unfortunately, prostitution magic and demonic activity. In fact, it was known as a, a region of a lot of mysticism and uh, these scrolls that people thought could tell the future. And, and uh, it was just a, a horrible area to live in in so many ways. In fact, uh, one person, Heraclitus, uh, who was by no means a believer, said this of Ephesus. He said, no one can live in Ephesus and not weep over its immorality. So here you have somebody who's not even a Christian saying to himself, man, Ephesus is so horribly immoral that no one can live there and not weep over the immorality that is there. And so that's the city. What, what do we know about the church? 
We know some about the church, and that is what we find in the book of Acts and also in some of the letters, uh, one letter in particular written in the New Testament. We know that from Acts 19 that it played an important role in the spread of Christianity. See, Ephesus was the home base for the Apostle Paul for three years of his earthly ministry. And from Ephesus, he would journey out and he would go and plant other churches. So Ephesus played a major role in the spread of the church there uh, through Paul's ministry of planting churches. It was also a recipient of, as I mentioned a moment ago, the letter to the Ephesians. When we read the, the letter to the Ephesians in the New Testament, this is written to this same church that Jesus is now writing this letter to through John. It was also the home base not only of Paul, but of Timothy for part of Timothy's ministry. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, Paul charges Timothy and says this. He says to him, he says, I want you to stay in Ephesus and put what remains there in order. And so Timothy had a job to do there in Ephesus. He was supposed to install elders. He was supposed to make sure that there was a structure there. And so Timothy oversaw the church in Ephesus for a period of time. And then eventually it's also even a home base for John for part of his ministry. So this church it had a significant pedigree. It had the Apostle Paul, it had Timothy, and it had John. And so as we pick up in Revelation 2.1, that's some of the background to this church. In chapter 2, verse 1, it says this, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write. Now, these letters are going to start with an address to the angel of the church, uh, the messenger, the angelos, the, the, the messenger of the church. These were the, the pastors of these seven churches. It says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So Jesus introduces himself to the church at Ephesus as the one who holds the seven stars and walks among the seven lampstands. In other words, he is the one who has the authority to assess, to judge. He's walking among the lampstands, which were the churches at the time, and he is evaluating these churches as one would walk around and, and evaluate maybe cars in a showroom. He's, he's judging what are the strengths, what are the weaknesses, and that's what he's doing with these churches. He walks among, as one who is the assessor, these seven golden lampstands. And as he does this, in the rest of this letter, and in many of the letters that we study in this series, Jesus is going to do three things. He's going to provide a commendation, that is, what's the church doing well? Then he's going to provide a confrontation, which is, okay, what is the church not doing well? And finally, he's going to provide a correction. What needs to change about this church? Commendation, confrontation, and correction. But we start with the commendation here in Ephesus. He says this in chapter 2, verse 2. He says, I know your works your toil and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but you've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Things start out well for the church in Ephesus, at least in this letter. Again, that pedigree that they had, they had Paul, they had Timothy, they had John. This was a church with a firm foundation. It was, this was not a, a floundering upstart. It was one with deep roots of apostolic authority and instruction. And that's exactly what Jesus commends them for. He starts with this summary statement. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. Your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. The, the works would have been understood as their pattern of behavior, their overall way of life. Jesus is commending them for their godliness here. In John chapter 3, verse 20, he says, those that are in the darkness they don't want to come to the light lest, he says, their works, it's the same word there, lest their works should be exposed, their pattern of life should be exposed. Here, Jesus is commending the church in Ephesus for their works, saying, 
you're, you're doing well. Your lifestyle is a godly lifestyle. But then he says, I know your works. I know your, your toil. Their toil would have been their hard work, their labor, their burdensome work. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2.9, he says, you remember, brothers, our labor and our toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. So Jesus commends them for their works, their godliness, but also for their toil, that these people were working hard for Jesus. They were laboring side by side with Paul for Jesus. They were or with, with the, the other believers there for Jesus. They were doing good work. And then he says, not just your works and your toil, but also your patient endurance, your ability to bear up under a burden, to persevere in the face of adversity. Again, they're living in a, in a, a city that had at least 50 different gods and goddesses that were worshipped there. A city where Heraclitus said, you can't live there and not weep over its immorality. And if you think of that, it's easy to see how a church would encounter opposition. That it would be difficult for a church to persevere, difficult for a church to bear up, difficult for a church to endure. And yet Jesus says of the church in Ephesus, that's exactly what they're doing. James said in James chapter 1 verses 2 through 4, count it all joy, my brothers. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, produces steadfastness. That's that concept that we're talking about there. That the trials that this church had, had faced was producing them this patient endurance that James commends to believers as well. Well, this toil and patient endurance that Jesus commends them for was most clearly seen in their defense of sound doctrine. He goes on, he says in part of this commendation, you cannot bear with those who are evil. You cannot bear with those who are evil. In other words, this church had a sensitivity to sin. It wasn't the church in Corinth. You remember the church in Corinth in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6? Uh, the, the apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth there and said, Look, you've got sin in your camp. In fact, it's, it's sin that's so bad that not even the, the unbelievers put up with this kind of a sin. And so here Jesus is saying, You're, you're not like that. You are, are not putting up with those who are evil. You are a church that cares about its purity. You're a church that cares about godliness, and so he's commending them for that. And then he goes on, he says, and, and you've also tested them, those that call themselves apostles and are not. You've tested those that call themselves apostles and are not. In Acts chapter 20, here the apostle Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. And in Acts chapter 20, he says this to them in verses 29 through 31. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves, false teachers, will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And so Paul in Ephesians, in, Ephesians, in Acts chapter 20, is admonishing the Ephesian elders, the same elders that, that were pastoring this same church. Now, it's been some time now when, when Jesus assesses this church and writes to this church, but what we find is they've done this well. They've answered the call. They've answered the charge from, uh, from Paul, and they've, they've guarded the flock. They have tested the, those that call themselves apostles and are not. John says in 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. This church had done that well. They, as we just saw, they cared about their, their purity and their godliness, and Jesus was saying, good job. And then we also see that they, they're discerning about doctrine. And Jesus was saying, this is a good thing that you're doing. You're making sure that you're not allowing false teaching to creep into the church. 
you've tested those that call themselves apostles and are not. Then he goes on and he says, and, and you're bearing up under, you're bearing up for my name's sake. You're not giving up. You're not giving in. Again, that patient endurance, and you've not grown weary. Jesus is saying, you guys are doing so well in this. We've got a phrase at, at Compass that we use quite often, and it's the phrase, it's called this. It's called Adapat. Adapat, A-T, A-P, A-T. And it, it stands for this, anything, any place, anytime. God, you want me to do anything, I'll do it. Any place, I'm there. Anytime, count me in. And that's what this church was doing well. They were Adapat. And, and Jesus is commending them saying, you know what, you are a godly church. Your pattern of behavior is godly. You care about godliness and you're battling sin in the church. That's a good thing. And then he goes on and he says, you know what, and, and you're also a discerning church. You've, you've encountered false prophets and false apostles and you will not give them quarter in the church. And that's a, a good thing. And he's going on and he's saying, and you're an enduring church. You are holding up. You are bearing up for the sake of Jesus and you've not grown weary. And then if you drop down to verse six, he, he gives them one more commendation. He says, and you hate the work of the Nicolaitans. Now you may be wondering who are the Nicolaitans and, and so does everybody. We don't know who the Nicolaitans were. They're this, this group that is kind of mysterious to us. And yet it's, it's likely most commentators believe that this was a group teaching and, and proclaiming a libertarian gospel, uh, which basically means this. That, that all you need to do is believe in Jesus. And then after that, it doesn't matter how you live your life. That there is no law. It's, it's antinomianism. Nomianism comes from namas, which means law in the Greek. So they were anti-law. You can go out and live whatever kind of lifestyle you want to live. It doesn't matter as long as you say, uh, yeah, I love Jesus. You've walked the aisle. You've prayed the prayer. You've raised your hand. Then go live whatever kind of life you want to live. Uh, Paul saying, or J Jesus was rather commending them in Revelation 2 saying, you hate that gospel. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans. You will not bear up under this false teaching that says, it doesn't matter how you live your life as long as you've just prayed a prayer at one time or another. Ephesus was a strong church with a strong foundation, a strong base of pure doctrine. Its walls were strong. And as we consider Christ's blueprints for the church, the first one starts with this positive example, reminding us to point number one this way, care about doctrine and theology. Care about doctrine and theology. That's our first point in this study. Care about doctrine and theology. We need to be a church at Compass Bible Church, North Texas, that values doctrine and theology. Jude wrote to Christians that we are to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Contend for it. Fight for the purity of the faith, the doctrine and theology of the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And that's not just the job of the pastors in the church. That's the job of every believer in the church that we all need to have a passion to see the Bible taught clearly and accurately, that we should bristle, bristle when we hear of a, a compromise or false teaching invading Christ's church. It should make us sad when we hear of churches that have drifted from the truth. Paul wrote to Timothy and, and, and called the church the, the pillar and buttress of the truth. In other words, the, the, the church upholds the truth of God's word. And we can't fail in that. And so if we want to be an effective church as we plant this church, as we launch this church, you know, we've got to be a church that cares about doctrine and theology, passionate about defending the truth of God's word. When it's compromised, it should bother us. When doctrine is cast aside as unimportant or when God's word becomes little more than a prop to a preacher, it, it should bother us. But all of this implies that we must know sound doctrine. We must know sound doctrine. This is imperative for us as a church, and, and we want to see uh, you guys equipped 
with the ability to, to get deeper in your faith, to grow more in your knowledge of doctrine and theology. Eventually, we're going to have a bookstore. We're going to start out with probably like a book table, um, but we hope to have a bookstore someday. Uh, but but that that's going to be a place where we want to put resources in your hands that are going to help you grow in your knowledge and understanding of doctrine and theology. And so we want you to be in the Word every single day. That's why we've got our daily Bible reading program. We're going to have a podcast that accompanies that where Pastor Rod and I help you think through the Word of God on a daily basis. And we want you diving deep in the Word of God because we've got to know the Word well. We want you diving deep in other resources. Maybe it's picking up a systematic theology, not so that you can just be smarter, but so that you can be better equipped to defend sound doctrine and theology. You can be a sharper tool in God's hand to accomplish the, pur- to accomplish the purposes that He has laid out for you. We need to be a church that cares about doctrine and theology. But the problem is, too many of us stop right there. The problem is, and and this was me for so long, I would look at a church and evaluate it by their what we believe page. I would go and check their doctrinal statement, and that's important. Don't get me wrong. That's utterly important. But I would read their what we believe page and say, okay, do I agree with all of these things? And then I would go to their pastor's bio, bio, and I would say, okay, where did he go to seminary? What's his pedigree? And if those things checked out, I would think to myself, this has to be a good church. Well, if that was the standard, Ephesus is fine, but that's not the only standard. Jesus didn't stop at the what we believe page with the church at Ephesus. He kept going and he points out a glaring deficiency and that's his confrontation. He says, but I have this against you, verse four. What a chilling word to hear from the Lord. I have this against you. What did he have against this church? He goes on, he says that you've abandoned the love that you have at first, that you've abandoned the love that you had at first. This is Jesus confronting the Christians in Ephesus here for a lack of love This church that had looked so good until now, this church that quite honestly would be a church where a lot of us would feel quite comfortable because the theology would be good, there'd be expository preaching, man, we would feel like we're we're there, we're we're with you guys, we want to be here. Yet they had a, a glaring deficiency in the eyes of Jesus. You've abandoned the love you had at first. In English, if you're typing an email or maybe a text, you want to emphasize something, you'll text in all caps. Maybe you do that or you've got a friend that does that and it's like, oh, okay, calm down, calm down. I get it. You're, you're passionate about this. Well, in the Greek, what they would do is, is they would take the word that they wanted to emphasize in the sentence and they would put it at the beginning of the sentence. They would put it at the beginning of the sentence because it didn't have to go subject, verb, object like we do in, in English. They had the ability to move things around in the Greek language. And so as we read this, the word that's at the beginning here is the word love. Because Jesus wanted the the emphasis to be there. Literally, it was this. Your love, which you had at first, you've abandoned it. In other words, you let it go. You've left it behind. Your love, which you had at first, you've let it go. What was that love? What is this first love? Well, in Matthew chapter 22, we have a scene where uh, one of the the rulers of the Jews, uh, an expert in the law, comes to Jesus and asks him, Teacher, what's the greatest commandment? What's the greatest commandment? And maybe you are rehearsing it in your mind, but Jesus responds and says to him, the greatest commandment is this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Love God, in other words, with everything that you are. And so when Jesus writes to the church in Ephesus and says, I've got this against you, your love, which you had at first, you've abandoned. I think that's the love that he's talking about. 
I think Jesus has said, you know, you've checked the doctrine box. You've checked the theology box. You've got sound preaching. You've got a rich pedigree. You're a godly church. But I've got a problem, and that is that you, you've lost a, a love, an all-consuming love for God. The question is this. Is it possibly possible to be doctrinally sound and yet devotionally bankrupt? The answer is yes. Yes. In fact, that's the Pharisees. In confronting the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, Jesus once chastised them in Matthew 15, 8 through 9. Matthew 15, 8 through 9, Jesus quoted Isaiah saying this, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. What a, a terrifying indictment that is. This people, they, they honor me with their lips. What they're saying is good, it's right, it's true, in other words. They've got the sound doctrine coming out of their mouths, and yet he says what? Their heart, their devotion, their love for me is distant. It's not there. And what does he call their worship in response in Matthew 15? He calls it vanity. He says, in vain do they worship me. Or consider Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler approaches him and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you know the commandments. And he lists off these commandments. And the rich young ruler looks back at him and he says, I've, I've done all these things. And Jesus says, well, one thing you lack. Go and sell all that you have and come and follow me. And the text says he went away sad for he had many great possessions. Now, I'm, I'm guessing those of us here uh, would not say that, that the commandment and the, the, the point here is that we need to go sell all that we have and, and come follow Jesus because all of us here probably have a, a roof over our heads of some sort that, uh, that is a possession that we have. We've got cars that, that bring us to and from. We've got clothes on our backs. We've, we've, we have possessions. So we haven't sold everything that we have to follow Jesus. So there must be something else at work here. Well, let's think about this man for a second. Was he doctrinally sound? Yes. He knew the word of God. He knew the commandments. He had an understanding of them. He, he had right, sound doctrine. Okay? Was he devoted to the law? Absolutely. He was able to, to, to consider the law and, and think through the law and say, am I, am I being obedient to all of these things? Yes, he was devoted to the law. Was he zealous for good works? 100%. Jesus lists the commandments and he says, I've done all those things. I've kept all those commandments. What did he lack? Well, he lacked this sold-out, all-consuming love for God. And, and that's why Jesus tells this man, go sell all that you have, because Jesus was putting his finger on his idol. Jesus was putting his finger on what this man loved more than him. And that was his possessions. For us, it might look different. Hey, go walk away from that job that you have and come and follow me. Hey, go give up that habit that you have been engaging in, that sinful habit that you've been doing, and come and follow me. Hey, leave off that relationship and come and follow me. Whatever the idol is, whatever the thing is that we might have in our life that we love more than God, God wants it gone because He wants us to love Him most. And that's the problem here. The rich young ruler had all the doctrine and the theology, and it's not that he should jettison that, but that that doctrine and the, the theology should produce the intended result, which is devotion. See, the, the, the problem is when doctrine becomes an end in and of itself instead of the means to the end of being fully devoted to God. James said this in James 
He said, you believe that God is one. In other words, you've got sound doctrine. Congratulations. He says, even the demons believe and they shudder. And there are a lot of demons that have better theology than some churches today. That have better and more sound understanding of theology and doctrine than some churches today. But they don't have the devotion. They don't have the love for Jesus. You know, we must have doctrine that produces devotion. That is so imperative for us as a church. It's our second point tonight. It's this. Make sure your doctrine produces devotion. Make sure your doctrine produces devotion. Care about sound doctrine and theology. We, we have that as our first point, and that's imperative for us. But that sound doctrine and theology is not our goal. It's not the end, but it's the means to the end that we would be more devoted to Jesus. So is your doctrine producing devotion? This is what the church in Ephesus was lacking, and Jesus wasn't okay with it. In fact, he says this later on. He says in verse 5, he says, I will come to you if you don't repent. I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place. What a statement from Jesus there. In other words, here's what it means. If you don't repent, if you don't turn, then here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to come take away this church. In other words, Jesus is going to say, I would rather have no church in Ephesus than a church that was all doctrine and no devotion. Doctrine is necessary. Hear me say that. Doctrine is essential. It's non-negotiable to the health of the church, but it is not the end in and of itself. You know, if I stop on my way home from work and, and purchase my wife some flowers and walk in and, and hold them out to her and say, hello, wife, it is good and right for me to get you flowers because that's what a dutiful husband is supposed to do, and I want to be a dutiful husband. And so I stopped at the store and grabbed some flowers for you, and here I brought them to you, and I hope you like them because this is what I'm supposed to do, and so here you go. Is she going to feel loved by that expression? No, of course not, right? It's, it's cold. It's, it's no devotion. It's no affection at all. And yet, y'all, that's so often how we come and worship God. We come and we think, well, it's right for me to be here. I need to come and do this. And look, should you come to church even when you don't feel it, like it? Yes. When you don't want to be here, should you still show up at church? Yes, 100%. It's better to be here than to not be here. But look, we need to check our hearts when we come to worship. It's not just about checking a box and going through the motions. It's not just about having the right doctrine and the right doxology and the right theology. It's about the love that accompanies it. It's about the affection. Puritan Richard Baxter, who is a pastor, Richard Baxter wrote this towards the end of his life. In fact, on his deathbed, he says, you come to me to learn to die. You come to me to learn to die. Be sure you choose God for your portion, heaven for your home, God's glory for your end, God's word for your rule, and then you have no need to fear, but we shall meet again in glory. Make sure you choose God for your portion. Make your life about, about Jesus. Love him more than anything else. Make him your desire. Make him your portion. I love that. As, as Baxter is dying, he's saying, you want to know what you should do in the rest of your life? You want to know how you should die well? In other words, how you should live the rest of your life in preparation for your death? Make sure you've chosen God as your portion, that he satisfies you above and beyond all things. So the question for us is, do we love God's truth or do we just love being right? I'll tell you guys, when I was growing up, I cared more about winning arguments than winning souls. 
in fact, I, I went to master's college and then master's seminary where they train you on how to be obnoxious about being right. And I can say that because I'm an alum of both of them. But in going to those schools, I, I got the doctrine. I got the theology. I got this, the soundness. I could check all those boxes. But man, that doctrine without producing devotion was, as Jesus confronted the Pharisees, just vanity. It's empty lip service. And so the question is, is our obedience to the Lord cold orthodoxy? Or is it a devoted offering to him motivated by love for him? Church, we need to make sure that our doctrine produces devotion. Well, Jesus didn't just confront this church and leave them in a, a, a messy wake behind him. He provided the correction. And that's our, our third section in this letter. Look at verse 5. He says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works that you did at first. Remember from where you've fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If I can break it down this way, Christ's correction comes in three parts. It comes in remember, repent, and return. Remember, repent, and return. First, he wanted them to remember what they had been like at the outset, at the start. Well, what was the church of Ephesus like towards the beginning? We get a glimpse of that in Ephesians. Ephesians 1, 15 through 16, the apostle Paul says this, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Notice that. One of the things Paul commends them for at the outset is their love. And you might be saying their, their love for the saints, their love for one another. Yes, but remember, Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love God. The second is to love your neighbor. Our, our, our full-on devotion to God is going to overflow in a love for one another. And so the church at Ephesus was loving one another out of their devotion to God. That was what they were like at the beginning. Or later in Ephesians 3, 14 through 19, Ephesians 3, 14 through 19, Paul says this, For this reason, then, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, here, notice this, being rooted and grounded in love. The, the church in Ephesus was rooted and grounded at one point in love, love for God, love for one another, that you might have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The church at Ephesus was once a church that was a loving church. That was a church that was overflowing with a love for God and a love for one another. John MacArthur says of this text in Revelation chapter 2, as Jesus is calling them to remember, he says this, that forgetfulness is frequently the initial cause of spiritual decline. Forgetfulness is frequently the initial cause of spiritual decline. Think of what you were like as a new believer. Think of the zeal, the passion that you had to tell other people about Jesus. Right? Think of the joy that we hear in the stories that are told in the baptism tanks. Think of the urgency and the burden that a new believer has to go and tell everyone that they can find that, that Jesus is their Savior and that they need to, to repent from their sins and put their trust in Jesus. In Acts chapter 18, we come across a man named Apollos. And uh, Apollos had heard some, enough, I, I think, to be saved, and yet he didn't know the, the fullness of doctrine and theology. He didn't have all the sound doctrine and theology that we would want him necessarily to have. But his zeal for Jesus was so much as a new believer that he was even going into the synagogues and he was going toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Pharisees and the other teachers there. And he was trying to convert the Jews in the synagogue. Well, Priscilla and Aquila come along and they see the zeal of this new convert 
and they, they're like, man, we love this, but we got to get some things in order. And they pull them aside and they kind of give them a crash course, a seminary 101 course, and they equip them to be able to go out and, and share the gospel uh, more uh, accurately and understand more fully the, the doctrine and theology uh, to, to make him more effective. But that joy that Apollos had, right? That's the, 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 the stuff that we're called to remember. That's the ingredients to this passion that we should have. That's what Jesus is calling this church to remember. Remember the love that you had at first. Remember how passionate for God that you were in the beginning. And the question may be, okay, but how do I get back there? What does that actually look like for me to, to remember and, and to return? It's the middle part there. It's repentance. Remember, repent, return. Repent, in other words, turn back. It's, it's a word that, that was a Greek term for an about face. It meant to stop going in one direction and turn completely and move in the opposite direction. Quit moving towards cold orthodoxy. Quit majoring in doctrine devoid of devotion. Turn from that and pursue a love for God again. Return towards the works that you did at first. It's not simply enough to, to turn because repentance is realized as we bear fruit. Bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. And that's Christ's third charge there, to return to the works that you did at first. This return, let me be clear, is not an abdication of doctrine and theology, right? And, and, and that's the, 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 the unfortunate false dichotomy that we find in so many of our churches today. It's like, well, are you a doctrinally sound church or are you a, a lovey and emotional church? And it's like, well, shouldn't we have a, a, a both and situation here? I think the answer has to be yes, because our doctrine is meant to produce an affection for Jesus. Our doctrine is meant to create a love for Christ. So it's not that we leave off the doctrine to be all touchy-feely and, and emotional and affectionate and loving, but that holding fast to the doctrine, we allow the doctrine to do the work that it's intended to do to, to cause us to love Jesus more. Y'all, as we launch this church, that's what we need to be doing. We not, need to not only care about sound doctrine and theology and make sure that that doctrine produces devotion, but as that doctrine produces devotion, it should cause us third and finally tonight to love Jesus most. That's our final point. Third, love Jesus most. That Jesus would be the all-consuming affection and passion of your life. Matt Chandler often says, fill your life with things that stir your affections for Jesus. I love that. Fill your life with the things that make you love Jesus more. What makes you love Jesus more? Is it about reading your Bible more? Yeah, I, I think that's got to be there for us, right? We need to spend concentrated time in the Word on a daily basis. Again, we're going to have our daily Bible reading plan. We're going to have a daily, daily Bible reading podcast. We're going to help you and equip you to, to be in the Word on a regular basis. That will help us love Jesus more. Well, does it look like praying more? Yeah, yeah. loving Jesus more is certainly about talking with Him, talking with God, conversing with Him through prayer. So do we want to be people that are praying more? Yes, absolutely. It looks like praying more. But what else does loving Jesus more look like? Stirring our affections for Christ. Can it be a, a cup of amazing coffee that you get to enjoy? Absolutely, 100%. If that coffee causes your affections to be stirred for Jesus, you love Jesus because of how he created you to, to be able to enjoy these things, and that's going to cause that, that cup of coffee to redound to the glory of God in your life, then yes, a good cup of coffee can stir your affections for Jesus. Everything about our lives should increase our affections for Jesus. And when we find something in our life that robs our affections for Christ, man, we got to get rid of that. We got to ex exercise that from our lives. We got to rid our lives of that because we have to be consumed with Jesus. My oldest son loves to read. And when he's got a good book that he's really into, we can tell because he just dives into it. 
and there's no distracting him. We'll sit there and we'll be in the same room as he is and we'll say, Josh, Josh, Josh. And we'll try to get his attention and he's just sucked into the content. He can't wait to find out what's happening. He can't put it down because he he just loves the storyline. Y'all, that's the zeal that we should have for our relationship with God. To be consumed by his storyline in our lives. To be on the edge of our seats to see what he's going to do next in our lives. To long to spend time with him. The way that my son longs to pick up that book and dive back into it any chance that he gets. Loving Jesus most means that we need to start by loving him more. So let me encourage you that that might look like tonight getting rid of some of the distractions in your life. The distractions that keep us from praying. The distractions that keep us from reading his word. The distractions that keep us from showing up at church. See y'all, in the end, God's not going to be impressed with our doctrine if we don't return to our devotion. It's a both and kind of relationship. And so we need to be eager to be with God. Eager to spend time with him. Because we love him. To rekindle this passion and to love Jesus most is going to take conscious effort. To love Jesus more, let me just encourage you as you think about what that should look like this week, it begins by action. And so for some of you, that may mean it's been a while since you last picked up the Bible in between Sundays. And so you're going to say, okay, you know what, this week I'm going to pick up my Bible. I'm going to get back into the Word of God this week. For some of you, it may be mean that, that prayer has been lacking in your life and you're thinking to yourself, you know what, I need to get back into praying consistently. And so you're going to start doing that. And look, what does that mean? That, that doesn't mean that you have to go from zero to 60 in your prayer life. It doesn't mean that you have to, to all of a sudden go, well, I'm going to pray for 30 minutes in the morning. and I'm going to commit to that every single morning, but be realistic. Just start, just start by praying something every single morning. Maybe it looks like deleting some of the, the apps that have been distracting you from spending time loving Jesus. Maybe there's some things that are on your phone or your tablet that, man, if you get rid of that app, that's going to free you up to spend more time loving Jesus more. Or maybe it means that there's a, a show that you've been binge watching and you're going, you know what, that's, it's a, a time waster for me. And it's also a show that's glorifying something that Jesus died for. It's not stirring my affection for Jesus. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get rid of that from my life. Or maybe loving Jesus more for you this week means identifying that person that coworker, that neighbor who you know, man, I, I, I need to share the gospel with them. It's been time. I've, I've been building into this relationship and now it's time I need to share the gospel with them. So maybe your love for Jesus looks like sharing the gospel, the, the truth about what he's done for you with someone who needs to hear it. Or maybe for you, it means caring about your brother or sister in Christ enough to get in their kitchen. That's another phrase you'll hear me say a lot. We let the, the people that, that come into our kitchen are, are, are people that we trust. When the orphan man knocks on the door to ask you about your bugs, you're not inviting him into your kitchen, right? No, but, but when you've got a good friend, they're going to come into your kitchen in your house. Spiritually speaking, you know, maybe loving Jesus more means loving our brothers and sisters in Christ more by getting in one another's kitchens to find out really what's going on in each other's lives. Not just staying on the surface, but digging in deep with each other. These are some of the ways that we can do the works we did at first. Again, Jesus made it clear what was at stake if we didn't do these things, if this church didn't do these things. In the last part of verse 5, he said, If not, I'm, I'm going to come and remove your lampstand from its place. Again, Jesus would rather have no church in Ephesus at all than a church that was all doctrine and no devotion. Unfortunately, that's what happened with this church in Ephesus. The church retained its vigor for several centuries and became the seat of some eastern bishops in the meeting place of the general council, which took place there in 8431. 
But if you go there today, there is no more church. As the city declined, the church declined with it. And the city now is uninhabited and one of the important ruins in that area. And, and it's unfortunate because that city that was once the great port city, that was at the heart of those four Roman roads, the market of Ephesus, it's now seven miles away from the closest water. The death of that city also marked the death of that church. Jesus fulfilled the, the threat that he had made there. If you don't repent, I'm going to take this lampstand from you. Without a zeal for God, there's nothing left to be attractive in this church. Their doctrine was left unadorned, bare, cold, and unappealing. And y'all, as we think about launching this church, I want us to be a church that loves doctrine. We need to care about doctrine and theology. But we need to make sure that that doctrine produces devotion and that that devotion results in a life where we love Jesus most. Let's pray.